Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. Samantha, has there ever been a divorce, like a public divorce in your life that really rocked you, really upset you? Public as in like famous or... I mean, either or. I was thinking famous, but... Famous? Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's many a times where I have gotten shocked and Mm -hmm. saddened because you just want them to be forever. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to think... Oh, Danny DeVito and Rita Perlman, they just seem like forever to Mm -hmm. me. And it was really sad because they just genuinely seemed to like each other and then they divorced. I guess everything is okay. There's not... It wasn't a big splash. I do remember that. But yeah, that made me really sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, I mean, obviously, we don't know the ins and outs of celebrities' lives and how that looks on an everyday basis. And it sometimes it just feels so different. Talking about it, I remember when we had um, the lawyer on who dealt with you know, these big high-profile cases. And I was listening to her talk like, whoa. (laughs) I've seen her named in a couple of more divorces since then. And I was like, oh, we know her. (laughs) Yeah. I can't think of one that comes immediately to mind, but there's definitely been couples where I I have a sort of similar moment of like, oh, they seemed happy. And I wanted you to be happy. Well, I think the big one may be Prince Charles and Prince Diana. That made some huge splash, definitely. Yeah. Uh, I know this is probably a little dated, especially, mm-hmm. but I remember it. I remember yeah. it being a huge, huge thing and everybody's losing their mind. Maybe also Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes because the initial way they got together. Yeah. Well, and certainly, you know, Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston and then Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. Yeah, you got the team, Angelina, team, Jennifer. Yeah, that is one interesting thing about these high-profile divorces is you get that kind of discourse. Which is um, so ridiculous because we're like, wait, what about Brad? He's the, he's the common him. denominator in this whole thing. He's the kind of the jerk that right. allowed this to happen. But okay, cool. Right. Yeah, and uh, this was on my mind because I know recently we talked about Bill and Melinda Gates and then it feels like the very next week they, it was announced they were getting divorced. And from as someone who doesn't know much about their relationship, I was still sad to hear that because, uh, you know, you hear about the work they've done together. Right. Um, and the, the kind of nonprofit space. And, and so I, I did have a kind of pang, like, oh. <laughs> yeah. For me, being the, uh, maybe you can call me Jada, whatever, in my head, I was like, yeah, but how much of that was really Melinda? <laughs> sure. No, that's I'm absolutely. guessing the bigger portion was probably kind of like the Bezos splash that happened when he and his wife divorced. His wife became pretty much the philanthropist and just gave away all the money. And I love that. And I feel like, not to be too uh, stereotypical in that, but I'm like, I I do wonder. Sure. And I guess we'll see. Yeah, I feel like there's been a lot of announcements of divorce lately. John Mulaney just announced he's being divorced. Yeah. Did you see the statement from the wife? No, I I saw heartbreaking. Her statement said that she was heartbroken that he asked for divorce. So absolutely mm-hmm. put it in his corner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, again, we don't know these people and we don't know no. their lives. And it's tough to... Because it is, that's a difficult experience. I can't imagine being public about all these things. Because again, oh. when we talk about the private level, 
sure. just in a small community. Oh, yeah. It's absurd and ridiculous. So yeah. being on that kind of scale. Yeah. I And I was thinking about that too when we decided to bring back this episode because a lot of it does go into the conversation of gold digging, which is obviously in a case like Bill and Melinda Gates, it's j- way bigger than on a, you know, regular everyday person. But I've already heard that conversation playing right. out around right. this. Um, and then I was thinking about when I was young and in my small town, if somebody got a divorce, that was like huge. huge news, right? And the, the failure in heavy quotes. And the failure the of the family even. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a lot of um, misguided ideas we have around divorce and women who are divorced, for sure. And we thought we would bring back this classic episode to dig into some of those ideas. So please enjoy. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And this week, Kristen and I are talking about a couple different groups of women, uh, but all of them are sort of maligned and mistrusted wives. Yeah, there's definitely stigma and stereotypes surrounding both women who go through divorces, particularly first wives and particularly first wives who are in very wealthy unions, and then trophy wives. Yeah, so two groups of women that people are sort of suspicious of, to say the least. Um, but yeah, w- without further ado, let's let's dive into talking about the divorcee, the woman that we tend to think of as older, probably she's wealthy, she's swilling a martini, uh, holding a little dog. She's she's probably a real housewife, honestly. Or she's a struggling single mom. Yeah. Honestly, that is the more accurate representation of a divorcee in 2015 in the U.S. Well, and when it comes to divorce, it's no big surprise that America is pretty divorce happy. According to statistics from January 2011, we have the highest divorce rate Really in the Western Hemisphere, uh, there were 3.7 divorces per 1,000 people, which is higher than the average EU country, which is at 2.1 divorces per 1,000 people. So we get married all the time in the mm-hmm. U.S., and then we get divorced all the time in the U.S. But the divorce rate is not at an all-time high. Yeah. It actually dropped. Yeah, it, it's sort of been kind of plateauing for the past several years. And I don't know. I mean, people fret so much about our divorce rate in America, but I, I also think that maybe that's a... A good sign that both our marriage and divorce rates are really high. People are seeking happiness, except that divorce can have bad effects on families. So anyway, like Kristen said, the divorce rate has actually gone down a little in the past 20 years. But let's break it down further. From 1960 to 2008, the share of currently divorced or separated Americans jumped from 5% to 14%. Divorce itself hit an all-time high back around the late 70s and early 80s after rising sharply in the 60s and 70s. So it's interesting to think about the context of the time, what's going on socially in our country. We're getting women's lib, we're getting civil rights movements, we're getting birth control, and then suddenly people are like, uh, 
I think I'm going to go. Yeah, divorce becomes easier in a way, or legally speaking. And one of the most fascinating sources that we ran across was a 1962 Harper's Bazaar article about the young divorcee and tracks her path from her first marriage and having kids, then getting divorced and dealing with her social life and personal life post-divorce and then leading up to remarriage because that at the time seems like the only option for her. Yeah, it was super. It was an interesting, you know, faux profile of a woman. And it it noted the article noted the uptick in divorce in the country. And it really sort of fretted about the weird limbo that divorced women find themselves in because it, it didn't speak super negatively about the issue of a woman being independent. I mean, it was kind of like poo-pooing it, but it wasn't saying that, oh, a divorced woman is a terrible person. But then it was sort of worried about the issues of sex. Yeah, I mean, because if, if a divorced woman has kids, obviously she has had sex before. So it's there. there's not the chastity kind of crown for her to wear around. Right. And the article quoted a divorce attorney who had watched as his clients over the years morphed from older men who were leaving their wives for younger women into middle aged women who just wanted out despite the guilt they might feel. And also, quote, being felt by everyone around her to be selfish and irresponsible, at the least seriously neurotic. And reading this article, Caroline, especially since it came out in 1962, made me think so much about Mad Men and Betty Draper getting divorced from uh, Don Draper and immediately getting remarried. And I was trying to think in the context of the show, whether there were similar echoes of this Harper's Bazaar article, but at least as it was portrayed in the show, she segues so quickly into her second marriage, and it's to a well-to-do politician. And she's a beautiful woman, so she's immediately kind of set back up as an esteemed wife and mother and not having to go through that divorcee phase. Yeah. Uh, Well, this article looked at sort of why a wife would just walk away from a husband. You've got a family. You've got a husband. What could possibly be wrong? And they spell it out. They say that it has everything to do with sex, sexual incompatibility, sexual limitations, simply looking beyond her husband for the first time, trying to escape the, quote, malaise of life and asking herself in general, Is this all there's going to be forever? And they write about it as if this is the first time that women are having these thoughts at all, that they're finally feeling the freedom to be like, oh, wait, I'm not satisfied. Not that that freedom to think that is necessarily good. They do kind of frame it in a way of like, why why isn't this good enough for you? Well, and there seems to be this period post-divorce that this young divorcee in 1962 really enjoys her singlehood. She doesn't want to say that the loss of her marriage, the divorce, uh, having to take care of her children as a single mom are tragic. And she doesn't want to ask anyone's forgiveness. And she might, in a way, feel a little bit entitled to some admiration. But then she quickly notices that her married friends disappear and might, this jumped out to me, and might be hanging out with her Mm ex-husband because she is more of a threat, she realizes, to the fabric of society because she is a woman who willfully chooses to step away from the safety and security of being a suburban wife 
and mother. Yeah, and then it paints this sort of grim picture of this woman, this divorcee, who's going on dates where maybe she chooses to go home with the man, or maybe she just has to sit there through the whole dinner and figure out a safe way to tell him she doesn't want to go home with him. But so then they end up describing the men that she's going on dates with, these either fellow divorced people or no longer young bachelors. And they write, these men are vast consumers of female companionship, being as they are inhabitants of a world that makes it somehow unpleasant for people to do such things as eat in restaurants, attend in the theater, or even arrive at parties alone. And they seem to consume women, either by not being pleased with them or by marrying them at a rate much faster than women of suitable age and circumstance can be produced. So then that leads us into a whole conversation in this article about people sort of feeling like they're at the end of their rope and they've just got to remarry or find someone who can fill that gap because that's just what you do. Yeah, and and because of that, they usually end up remarrying for factors like the convenience, the, well, why not, the companionship factor, and also it making more economic sense. And maybe even for sex without judgment? Yeah. Really, it was a really interesting article. It was a really interesting snapshot into this period in time when divorce was skyrocketing. But let's move back to some Pew Research Center statistics looking at what does actually increase the risk of divorce beyond just that malaise of life, trying to escape it. And Pew lists having less education, marrying younger, just being younger, and marrying during the 70s. <laughs> Is in itself a factor. Well, thankfully, Caroline, we're we're in the clear. <laughs> if we were to get married anytime soon, yes, I would have been negative a couple years old. And so, when you look at that age factor, men's median age at divorce is a little. It's almost thirty-two years old, and for women, it's just about twenty-nine and a half. Oh man, we're we we should have gone through our first divorces, Caroline. I know. Happy divorce. And I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong or if I'm just making this up, but I feel like this stereotype of a divorcee is that she's she's much older and that she's been abandoned for a younger woman. But only about 11 percent of women 65 and up are divorced. So, well, yeah, because by that point, probably if you stuck it out, then you're like, well, we've been together for 30 (laughs) years. Might as well make it 50. (laughs) Go for it. Um, I will say one thing, though, about the rate of divorce kind of leveling off in recent years, too. It's not so much because we've fallen in love more and more effectively, but uh, largely because of the recession, because we didn't have money to divorce. So we stuck together. So people think that we will soon be seeing more of an uptick in divorce if we haven't already. But with that uptick in divorce, the question is, will we see an uptick in this divorcee stereotype, which does feel... Very Mad Men era when you start reading about it, thinking about women swilling martinis. <laughs> I mean, not so much the small dogs thing, but I am thinking of Roger Sterling's <laughs> divorce. Sorry, I've been catching up on Mad Men <laughs> lately, but Roger Sterling, an older guy, he's probably in his 50s, early 60s. He's a silver fox and he divorces his wife, who is the older divorcee, classic, wealthy Manhattan stereotype. Oh, yeah, I I was definitely interested going into this episode in finding out how true the stereotype is. And basically, spoiler, what we uncovered is that the stereotype of this older, uh, wealthy woman who's perhaps a little bit gold digging 
it's only really it only really crops up among the wealthy. It's not like your average divorcee is always going to be gold digging, you know, with the small dog and everything. Um, and there's one example that stuck out in the news from January 2015 uh, that sort of fit into this ugly stereotype that we have culturally. And this is coming from the New York Post. So, you know, they had nothing nice to say about the people involved. But Sue Ann Arnold, who's 56, and her ex-husband, oil tycoon Harold Hamm, were married for 26 years. They got a divorce. He writes her a check for more than $974 million after paying her more than $20 million during their actual divorce proceedings. And the New York Post went crazy, frothing at the mouth over the fact that Sue Ann Arnold turned down the check for being too little. And they dubbed her angry. They definitely painted her as the typical angry gold digging divorcee. Of course, her lawyers clarified that like, well, accepting this check would actually risk the dismissal of her appeal that is in court. The appeal having granted her $955 million. So there's a lot of money at play in these sort of big name, top of the heap divorce proceedings. Well, and the media love either a super wealthy or celebrity mm-hmm. divorce. And usually the women in these stories are painted as, like you said, either a little bit gold digging who are trying to grasp onto every penny and every vacation house they can possibly sink their manicured claws into or they're objects to be pitied because they lost their looks and then their husbands moved on to someone younger, as in the case of, say, a Carol McCain, Senator John McCain's first wife, who in uh, another grain of salt, a quote unquote news story (laughs) in the Daily Mail, uh, profiling the dissolving of their marriage after uh, McCain came back from the Vietnam War and ended up leaving her for his now wife, Cindy McCain. And was there an overlap in the marriage? Yes, there was. And while McCain was uh, in the Hanoi Hilton in Vietnam, uh, Carol McCain, who they report on, used to be a beautiful swimsuit model. She was in this horrific car accident and it disfigured her. And it was basically like, oh, and now... She, you know, she wasn't attractive enough, essentially. And they did paint it as a a kind of a disgusting story on his end. But it always fits into these kinds of narratives are very formulaic in the way that they are told in such kinds of similarly salacious details. Yeah. And in addition to the whole Carol McCain being left behind by her ex, we've got the Jane Hawking narrative. Uh, she was left by Stephen Hawking. He left her for his nurse. And the Guardian uh, newspaper doesn't treat Jane Hawking in their story about her nearly as badly as the Daily Mail treated McCain. But they still write about her life with Hawking, quote, has left her a legacy of deep regret. And though she tries to hide it, bitterness. Yeah, I mean, both of these stories were highly sympathetic to these women because both of them were left Mm -hmm. for other women. And I got to say, okay, I have not seen a theory of everything, the Stephen Hawking biopic that got all the Oscar attention. But during the Oscars and throughout all of the publicity for that film, you know, that that is about Jane and Stephen Hawking's early romance. I could only think, dear God, are we really creating this? I mean, there is this love story, but I'm just curious whether it includes the not so romantic 
ending of that marriage. I mean, and even within the marriage, while it was still intact, she talks about how their relationship was not a perfect one at all. But, you know, reality check again. No marriage is perfect. What? I know. Party pooper alert. <laughs> Talk about a spoiler. Jeez. Um, well, yeah, I mean, speaking of reality checks, this whole wealthy couple news story or the the narrative that we're so used to hearing about divorces really hides the reality that, hey, it's not typically the woman who becomes super wealthy after a divorce. Men become richer by about a third after divorce and their earning potential does not get dinged because of it, while women tend to lose more than a fifth of their income. And also, typically, if women end up getting custody of the kids, they give up reaching their full earning potential to care for them. And plus, it's hard to make up for those lost years of not working while married. So while, you know, in these wealthy marriages, the man might have kept working, kept earning, kept moving up that ladder, and the woman didn't work, then if she's suddenly divorced and she has to reenter the workforce, she has a lot of time that's left out on her resume. And that was one thing, too, that jumped out to me in that 1962 Harper's Bazaar piece, the sympathy with which the author notes that the young divorcee has to go back to work. It's like, well, and then there's the whole job thing. Yeah, I mean, it talk it talks about how this woman, and in the beginning of her marriage, was so eager to to join the workforce to help out. But oh, thank God! Once once the husband got on a stable professional footing, she could get out of there. Whew. Well, and even not to say that that all of these divorcees don't have jobs before. But they might simply, especially in these wealthier relationships, their career was probably taking a back seat in whatever way that meant mm-hmm. um, to their husbands. And also, too, uh, a quick acknowledgement that this is a straight up <laughs> pun heteronormative conversation <laughs> right now. This yeah. is still I mean, because uh, gay marriage is not it has not been around legally long enough <laughs> for us to even have built these stereotypes around gay divorcees. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, if you want to talk about a wife's career taking a backseat to a husband's, just look no further than the relationship between Elon and Justine Musk. And of course, Elon Musk is the PayPal founder who made a bajillion dollars. And Justine wrote a column for Marie Claire back in 2010. And her narrative is one that's pretty familiar to anyone who's ever, you know, watched a movie or seen a soap opera, her wealthy, controlling husband leaves her, and she's a writer turned, in her words, trophy wife. Uh, and she had loved books and reading and wanted to really shape and nurture her writing career, and her husband was like, no, no, you're not. Um, and anyway, so he leaves his trophy wife and children, and five children, for a super young British actress whom he has since divorced and remarried. Um, but fortunately, Justine Musk claims that she and the new wife actually get along. Yeah, I mean, and that adds a little bit of nuance, reality nuance to this whole kind of tropey narrative as well. Because, oh, we don't have to start yet another stereotypical narrative about two women, quote unquote, catfighting over the quote unquote possession of a quote-unquote man. Okay, no quote-unquote around the man. But the thing is, too, them getting along might not matter so much because 
This jumped out to me. Divorce rates for second marriages are higher, 57%, than for first marriages. And the biggest reason why? Kids not getting along with their parents' new love interest. Blame it on those kiddos. Yeah. (laughs) Anybody who has seen uh, Downton Abbey knows that even when the children are adults, it can really interfere with a new love match. I won't say anymore. I don't know what that means. I can only make Mad Men references right now, I think. <laughs> and I can't make Mad Men references, so it works out perfectly. But one thing that's not really part of the popular stereotypes about divorcees is the fact that women tend to be the ones who file for divorce or separation first. And we're going to talk about that more in detail in just a second. So in the first half of the podcast, we're talking a lot about this usually wealthier divorcee stereotype uh, and how she has been largely stigmatized in a lot of ways. And uh, at least starting in the, the 1960s, when divorce was really on the rise, was presented with just the option of remarriage. So we were trying to add some nuance to that and ground it more in reality. And the next reality we want to talk about is how women statistically are likelier to file for divorce compared to husbands. And this is a little bit of a dated study, but uh, it nonetheless has a fabulous title uh, coming from 2000. Margaret F. Brinnig's and Douglas W. Allen's These Boots Are Made for Walking, Why Most Divorce Filers Are Women. Yeah, so we have this assumption that because of post-divorce financial and social hardship, men end up being the ones to instigate the divorce in most cases. After all, women's standard of living usually declines, and as she ages, especially if she has kids, her quote-unquote market value as a marriage prospect decreases while the husband's market value increases. But the reality is a little different. The proportion of wife filed cases hovers around two thirds and a large portion of those women say that they're happier post-divorce because of this sense of relief if they're getting out of a bad situation. Uh, and women are also more likely to instigate a separation, not just a divorce. And looking at why this is, there are a couple different reasons in this study. It it partly has to do with assuring their innocence in any divorce proceedings to possibly secure custody or support rights. Maybe it's more convenient for them to file, but they also might be escaping a cruel or exploitative situation. And also, though, Brennig and Allen write that filing behavior is driven by self-interest at the time of divorce, such as when there are marital assets that can be appropriated. And also, again, when they're being exploited within the marriage, like when the other person violates the marriage contract somehow, such as running around or being a super controlling, just being a, a really, a really lousy spouse in one way or another. And then, of course, when it comes to custody, who gets the kids is by far the most important component in deciding who files. And usually because women are the primary caregivers, they're going to be the ones to step in first and probably get uh, primary custody for those kids. But Brennig and Allen also predict that as men and women's labor force income becomes more nearly equal, they write. In other words, as things like the gender wage gap close and women continue entering the workforce, the difference in filing rates should disappear. So 
<laughs> Equal opportunity divorce filings for all. Yeah. And so it seems like this whole women filing first thing is less about gold digging, our stereotype about gold digging and just wanting to get the money and really more about for a lot of women being able to carve out a secure place after leaving a bad situation, trying to leave possibly a bad marriage, make sure that they have custody of the kids, less about trying to completely deplete their ex-husband's bank account. But the thing is, there's also this this blame on women a lot of times for heterosexual marriages falling apart, whether they're the ones who filed or not. And sometimes whether the spouse was violating that marital contract or not. And this was something that Lynn Stewart Paramore at Alternet was railing against in response to this blog post she had read. I think it was featured on the Huffington Post homepage about five ways that women were failing their marriages and basically saying, you know what? Women, you are in charge of creating an emotionally safe environment, making sure that sex is happening on the regs. And if you're not doing these kinds of things and really maintaining the emotional health of your marriage, well, it's on you because the guy's job is to make the money. They're pragmatic. They're logic. They're thinking about numbers and baseball. They're not thinking about... (laughs) You know, emotional (laughs) nurturance, which is really just an insult to everybody across the board and, of course, plays into very antiquated gender stereotypes. Yeah. And and Paramore says that these all of these stereotypes about our behavior obscure the driving forces that can split a marriage. And she says that all of this finger wagging at women usually comes along with the offsided statistic that we also cited that women file for divorce twice as often as men. And what we hear less often, Paramore writes, is straight talk about the social and economic factors that drive the engine of divorce. The fact is that college educated people are more likely to stay together and that there's a higher risk of divorce for people with lower incomes and less education. And she goes on to say that when people are struggling to pay the rent and keep a roof over their heads, the marriage problem isn't likely to be some kind of deficiency in managing intimacy. The the sole thing, the glue that holds a marriage or any type of relationship together is not purely just intimacy. Or how often you're getting laid, although sex is a huge reason for a lot of divorces to happen. There's so much more to it. And the fact that the more money you have and the older you are, the less likely you are to get divorced. That just means that there are other things that we need to dig into here about the reasons behind marriages breaking up. Yeah, because uh, she goes on to cite this UCLA study about how low income versus high income study respondents held similar romantic standards and had similar kinds of problems in relationships. And that is no big surprise. But the low-income respondents were likelier to report that their relationships were being affected by economic and social issues like financial struggles, alcohol and drug abuse, etc. So when you have more resources, it can make it easier to cope with those relationship stressors that usually put a strain on any kind of marriage. Because, and I can attest to this, if you're worried about money, you add something else to that, and it just, everything is just even more intensified. And that's just finance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially if somebody or both people are working multiple jobs, maybe somebody doesn't have health benefits. I mean, there's so many 
things that are rooted in money that can put so much strain on a relationship. Well, and that would probably go into the age factor as well in terms of people who marry younger are likelier to get divorced because I think that also speaks to probably your earning potential at the time when you get married, but also the kinds of tools that you might be bringing in terms of life experience into conflict resolution. Thinking about myself getting married, if, if when I was 22, no, I would be divorced. I would absolutely be divorced. Oh, yeah. It is horrifying to think about. I So I started going to therapy uh, almost a year ago, and it has changed my life. Would I say that everybody should go to therapy? Yes, I would. But it has been so helpful, this process of digging through like all the jumble that is my brain and my pile of emotions has been so helpful not only for making me a, a more functional human, but also a more functional human in my relationships. And so imagining like my boyfriend and I talk all the time about our faulty tool sets that we were provided with when we were younger. And so not having been able to add to that tool set, getting married at a super young age. Not that I'm saying that there aren't totally mature, like with it, having it all together, younger people, but I would also be in that probably divorced category. Okay, but let's say that we had gotten married in our early 20s and thanks to our faulty tool sets, respectively, our marriages dissolved. Now let's talk about remarriage because as common as divorce is and also as probably painful as it can be, remarriage is still highly common. And this was reported on in November 2014 in Time Magazine. Uh, and I believe that they were reporting on statistics out of the Pew Research Center, which we cite so often on the podcast. And uh, they were writing about how 40% roundabout there of all the new marriages in 2013 were not first marriages. In half of those cases, both spouses had been married before. So a big bulk Mm -hmm. of our marriage statistics are people saying, you know what, I'll give it another go. (laughs) Why not? There is a huge drive for a lot of people to remarry, whether it is that, you know, 1962 Harper's Bazaar life convenience companionship thing or, you know, a multitude of other things. You can fall in love again, Caroline. It's true. Oh, my gosh. Well, yeah, and Pew talked about these reasons, possibly people wanting more life satisfaction, because only half of divorced or separated people said they were happy with their family lives compared with married folks, 84% of whom were satisfied. So maybe there's just this drive to have a richer family life. But there's also the issue of commitment and stability. Uh, Pew writes about how divorced or separated people put more emphasis on making a lifelong commitment and financial stability than do singles or cohabitating partners. And they are more likely to say that these are reasons to get married. And men, as echoed in our podcast on widowhood, men are more interested than women in remarriage. Uh, Men are more likely than women to view companionship as important to marriage as compared with just 30 percent whose second marriage is, quote unquote, for love. (laughs) And to say that financial stability is a very important reason to get married. And when it comes to men's reasons for remarriage, they're also likelier than women to cite companionship and financial stability as two big motivators. Yeah, as opposed to the 30 percent whose second marriage was for love. That can't be right. Come on. (laughs) It seems like if you were going to go through that a second time, 
that wouldn't you be more motivated to do it? Well, no, I was about to say, wouldn't you be more motiv- motivated to do it for love? But no, by that point, you probably realize that love can dissolve and you might be a little mm-hmm. more pragmatic. Yeah, well, I mean, we've talked about this. We've done a previous episode looking at issues of divorce and widowhood and men have typically typically are more driven to form those person to person bonds with a partner than women are. Women are like, I've got my girlfriends. I'm cool. I'm fine. I'm happy. I'm, I've got healthy relationships all around me, whereas men are like, I need a cruise director. Well, that's why I'm really curious to see in emerging literature in the coming years, similar kinds of data on gay couples, specifically mm-hmm. looking at gay men. I wonder if the motivations would shift at all when you have two guys or two women and how those kinds of gender stereotypical marital roles Mm -hmm. then maybe mix and match when it's it's two fellows or two ladies. Yeah, well, something that uh, I thought about reading about this whole like men are motivated by financial security in, in remarrying. You know, earlier we talked about how women are way more likely to have their finances and their earning potential dinged post-divorce than men are. Men just like, I've just continued on this trajectory of my career and my earning potential this whole time, whereas a lot of women step off the track, you know, lean in, all that good stuff. They've stepped off the track to either be at home or be with the kids or whatever. And there have been study findings talking about how like attracts like, especially when it comes to important things like money beyond just personality and interests and those kinds of things. And so it almost seems like with finances being so important to men, they might be seeking out someone who has equal earning potential to themselves, like potentially a trophy wife. But for a woman who's already been financially dinged after a divorce, she might not be able to sort of uh, find a new mate whose earning potential is as great as her ex-husband's. And so that would be something I'd like to learn more about. But that's just kind of a question that popped into my head as I was reading. Well, and talking about the earning potential, too, and how divorce can impact women's incomes, especially as they get older, sort of the, the sadder reality, the bleaker reality, I should say, of divorce for women is that according to the Social Security Administration, 20% of divorced women over 65 live in poverty compared with 18% of never married women and 15% of widowed women. So uh, 2% is not huge. And even 5% is not, doesn't sound like a huge percentage. It's not this gaping gap. But still, when we're talking about across the country, that adds up to a, a number of people. Yeah, and the Social Security Administration was spelling out like, hey, well, at least widows have some sort of pension or um, or women who have been in the workforce have accrued Social Security benefits. So, like, there are different types of women in different types of life situations who are still having money come in, but those women who completely stepped off the career track haven't been accruing any Social Security benefits, which form a nice net for a lot of people. Yeah. But when it comes to the good, and there is a lot of good, especially because I would argue that that this the divorce stigma is probably lower than it's ever been. We accept that it is in a lot of ways a fact of life. It's kind of a roll of the dice at this point. And there was a column at Moore magazine from divorce coach Jill Brooke who, I mean, by virtue of her being a divorce coach, she's pretty 
pro-divorce. <laughs> but I mean, she's she's really optimistic about it, saying that most over 40 women realize, you know what, I might not get married again, but I really don't care. And she says that research finds that overall women are happier post-divorce. Yeah, she says that they're finally able to focus on themselves, particularly, obviously, if the kids have left home and they have the resources to do so, which is also key. Um, you know, they're not responsible for anyone else's housework and chores. They're no longer picking up a husband or a boyfriend's underwear off of the floor. And she talks about Dr. Barbara Bartlick, who's a sex therapist and psychiatrist at New York Presbyterian Hospital, and says that Bartlick sees a growing trend of financially secure women preferring to stay single and date. They enjoy having their own schedules without having to report to anyone. And plus, you get the whole cougar factor that that's also becoming less and less stable stigmatized for an older woman and a younger man to get together. So there are options. There are options and more more stereotypes. Yep. Oh, so many. In which you can you can be an animal when you grow up, like a cougar. Um and I will say though, anecdotally, I am one one divorce story that that makes my heart sing is a friend of mine's mom who got divorced when she was probably in her mid 40s and it was a kind of nasty divorce. It was pretty heart wrenching. There were kids, you know, they had had a lot that she'd been with her husband for a very long time. But she met this guy and they are in love and she seems younger than ever, ever before. And it really is like a second life for her. Mm-hmm. And it's just been really amazing to see her coming to life, especially being in what was, in a lot of ways, a very unhappy marriage. Yeah. And it's like it couldn't have come soon enough. And her boyfriend also is divorced as well. And he has his kids, too. And it's like for both of them, they're like, oh, my God, you amazing human. So, Aww. yeah, I mean, I think that they're I'm I'm heartened to see that because we have longer lifespans than ever before, you know, like that, that's also a reason why divorce happens. It's because like humans really weren't built to like hang out with one human for like 50 <laughs> years. And one example of how we are ritualizing this kind of romantic, uh, transition. I don't even want to call it a loss. This romantic transition is through the more recent trend of divorce parties. How interesting. This sounds like another thing that you sort of have to have those resources for. Well, yeah, you have to be able to, you know, buy a cake, perhaps if you want. There are bakers who will sell you a divorce cake. And a lot of times they'll have a similar kind of wedding cake topper on it with the bride and the groom. But usually it's something really funny, like the bride dragging the groom out to a trash bin. And just to drive home, Caroline, how how significant of a trend this has become There is a BBC News headline from uh, late 2014, The Red Hot Business of Divorce Celebration. Interesting. So not not really too far. I mean, it's on the other end of the spectrum, but not too far removed from the gender reveal parties that we've talked about before. Yeah. People wanting an excuse to, to throw a party and eat some cake, maybe Maybe go to Vegas and live it up. Yeah, I, I also thought it was interesting that there's even a Wikipedia entry for divorce parties. And in that BBC News article, they profiled this woman who has now become a divorce party planner who went to Vegas with her girlfriends post-divorce to kind of, you know, kickstart 
the whole post-divorce process. They went to a shooting range. She brought her bridal gown and she shot it up with a machine gun and she had so much fun doing it. She turned it into a business and common kinds of things include skydiving parties where you're jumping in to being single hmm. again. And there's even in the Netherlands, a divorce hotel where couples can go together to like take care of the whole thing. You can file your papers you know, get divorced, maybe have a little like post-divorce pampering and you're just like, all right, cool. Yeah. See you later. Divorced. Interesting. But that is so far removed from the average woman's divorce experience. Well, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. (laughs) If you have the money at hand after paying a divorce lawyer and like going through all of that and, you know, renegotiating all of your finances as now a single person and you can then go to Vegas with your girlfriends, it does seem like a bit of a real housewivesy kind of pursuit. Yeah. Yeah. And and just like the real housewives, it's sort of tacky but also sort of just living your life by your own rules. Exactly. I mean, and, and the BBC did talk to a psychologist who said, "Yeah, this is, you know, this could be seen as a healthy way to, you know, create this new kind of ritual." I mean, we we it, it happens so commonly. I mean, it happens half as often as marriage does. So <laughs> why not eat some cake? Yeah. Why? <laughs> well, that's my attitude about everything. Yeah. Why not? Yeah, it's true. Um, so I am curious to know if any podcast listeners have either thrown or attended a divorce party. Yeah, I, I'm just curious about knowing, like, what's what's your divorce reality? I, are Is your life more like the 1962 Harper's Bazaar article where your fellow women and married people see you as sort of a suspicious threat uh, or somebody to be pitied? Or are you just out there living your life excited to sort of be free of your, you know, marital bonds? Yeah. What is the status of the divorce stigma? MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Well, so Christian and I have gotten an overwhelmingly awesome response to our OCD episode. A lot of you guys, whether you have OCD or just know someone with with OCD, uh, wrote in thanking us for talking about the topic. And we have two letters here uh, from women who are dealing with this thing called Pure O. And so we're going to read them now. This one's from Whitney. Uh, she says, first of all, I live in an area where it's not a good thing to be liberal or a feminist. So you guys have been like my feminist besties over the past year. Thanks, Whitney. She goes on to say, thank you so much for your wonderful episode on OCD. I was diagnosed at the age of 15. I suffer from a form of OCD known as pure O. I have intrusive thoughts of harming myself or loved ones, even though I am neither violent nor suicidal. And I've never really had compulsions. If you want further insight, this is also discussed in the first episode of another fantastic podcast called Invisibilia. I am very fortunate to have almost no symptoms 11 years later, thanks to antidepressants and cognitive behavioral therapy. Thank you, thank you, thank you for calling out shows like Monk for misrepresenting OCD. It is not a cute, fun, or beneficial illness. Ever since I was a teenager, I loathed shows like Monk and What About Bob because they aren't helpful to OCD sufferers and those with other mental illnesses. Either our experiences are invalidated because the OCD is seen as something minor, or we're seen as weird and our opinions don't matter. 
Every time I try to express opinions about those types of jokes in the media, I've gotten brushed off by both friends and family for overreacting because it's just a show. It may just be a TV show, but the things we watch both reflect and influence our attitudes. So thanks, Whitney. And I've got one here from Rebecca, also about Pure O. She writes, I have a version of OCD called Pure O since childhood and was finally diagnosed this past fall. Pure O is basically OCD without the outward physical compulsions. I spend hours and hours obsessing about all kinds of things, from the food that I eat to how my lesson plans are written out. I've had obsessions since I was a little girl. We once had our house bombed for fleas, and without telling anyone, I slowly but surely threw away or refused to touch any of my belongings that I imagined may have been exposed to the mysterious flea-killing chemicals. I spent seven years in therapy with someone who didn't believe in OCD without compulsions, and it was an unbelievable relief to finally find someone who understood what was happening in my brain. I also have other anxiety issues and clinical depression, but I'm very high-functioning and am trying to spread the word so that others who have these disorders can get the help and compassion that they deserve. I'm hoping that you can help spread the word that Pure O OCD is a real diagnosis. Just because someone isn't lining up their pencils and checking the oven over and over doesn't mean they aren't struggling. Thanks, as always, for helping to keep us all educated about current issues. And thank you, Rebecca, and thanks to everybody who's written in to us. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with our sources, so you can read more about divorced women, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank you.